Monitor. 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, 2000 hours Greenwich Mean Time. This is Monitor, reporting the nation and the world. The combined radio and television networks of the National Broadcasting Company bring you the premier broadcast of Monitor. The new NBC radio service originating from NBC's Electronic Communication Center, Radio Central New York. Now, to introduce Monitor to America, here is the president of the National Broadcasting Company, Mr. Sylvester L. Weaver. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Monitor, our new NBC weekend radio service. This is a preview, which will be seen on television for the next hour, and it will be heard on radio until midnight tonight, New York time. But beginning next week, Monitor will start each Saturday morning at 8 o'clock New York time and run until midnight on Sunday. It will bring you a continuous flow of items of high interest and information. Monitor is for all of you, wherever you are, in your cars, at home, at the beach with your portables, everywhere. In an editorial inside the 1955 Radio Network's annual, the president of the American Broadcasting Company, Robert Kintner, asked a million-dollar question. Where do we go from here? Four million new U.S. homes had TV sets. Saturation had grown to 67.2%. Radio broadcasters were searching for answers. Kintner guessed that whatever the solution, it wouldn't come from hindsight reasoning. By 1955, broadcasting had reached mass distribution. Nearly every home in America had a radio. But Kintner felt programming wasn't doing itself justice. In October of 1955, ABC revamped its primetime radio advertising format. The sales department offered five minutes of spot time between 7.30 and 10 p.m. for $800. Robert Kintner still believed dramatic radio had a place. Well, thank you, Pat. In a moment, we're going to turn our live cameras and microphones to the West Coast, to Hermosa Beach, California. Mutual Broadcasting's president, Thomas F. O'Neill, ventured that radio accompanied an American's life more than any other medium. Mutual studies found that Americans owned 110 million radio sets. During the day, radio still held a 70% share of the nation's audience when 16 million homes listened. At night, 25 million still tuned in. Mutual had affiliates in 572 American cities, but they were the only one of the four major networks without a TV footprint. A plane is standing by at this moment to go nonstop to London from Idlewild Airport, a monitor transport... At NBC, Monitor's success helped revamp their weekend format. The brainchild of President Pat Weaver, it debuted in June. Weaver felt that broadcasting could educate as well as entertain. But he soon left, and Robert Sarnoff was promoted. Radio's leader was still CBS. Network president Adrian Murphy claimed that listening actually was growing again. TV had made the medium more dynamic. News, music, and sports began to dominate the dial. They were the cheapest forms of content to produce. The networks began splitting advertising costs with their affiliates, giving away network time for local ad spots. And thanks to cars and the new transistor sets, people were listening in more out-of-home places than ever before. Richard M. Mall, in the Journal of Broadcasting, speculated that the days of families listening together in the parlor were over. 
armed with this knowledge. In October, CBS revamped its 8 p.m. weekday slot. They canceled Mr. Keene and The Whistler and moved Suspense, The FBI and Peace and War, and Arthur Godfrey's Digest. In place, they debuted two 15-minute serials. The first was the comedy My Son Jeep starring Paul McGrath. Then at 8.15, the man with the action-packed expense account signed on in one of the most critically acclaimed shows in dramatic radio history, as Bob Bailey starred in Jack Johnstone's production of Tales from America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 102. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we travel back to the fall of 1955 for the relaunch of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Although the five-part dollar format would last only a year, listeners then and in the years since have praised the productions as some of the best ever. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is 80 Drums Around the World's version of Caravan, a fitting motif for the radio industry in 1955. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Broadcasting System presents a thrilling new adventure series starring Dick Powell. I'm an insurance investigator. My name is Johnny Dollar. What? You heard me, Johnny Dollar, and I can pad an expense account with the best of them. Yep, I'm a freelance insurance investigator, and I live in Hartford, Connecticut. At least that's where I pay rent. My work sees to it that I really live anywhere, except at home. I'm free, white, 34, and so forth. If you're interested in buying me Christmas presents, I take a size 42 suit. Shirts 15 and a half, collar, sleeve length 33. My hat size is 7 and 8, except when I wind up a successful case. Then it runs about 7 and 3 eighths. At insurance investigation, I'm just an expert. At making out my expense account, I'm an absolute genius. On December 7, 1948, film veteran Dick Powell recorded an audition for a new detective series called Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. East Coast Underwriters, Terminal Building, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Austin Farnsworth, General Manager. The following is an accounting of my expenditures in the investigation of Milford Brooks III for your company. Expense account item one. Cab fare to your office in answer to your original call, 75 cents. Tip to driver, one dollar. Expense account item two. Shoe shine, 25 cents. You'll remember I got my shoes scuffed when I unsuspectingly walked into your private office. 
Milford. No, you must get out, out of boy. my way, Ponsford. Dollar! Get yeah, yeah, you away from that window. Don't hey, you, you. Jump. Hey, 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 no, 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 you don't. Let go of me. Let go of me, you fool. No, no. There are better ways of making a big splash in life. Get away! Well, nice try, Sonny. Now pay attention to teacher. Oh, I didn't know I had it in me. Oh, oh goodness gracious, Dollar. Did you have to hit him so hard? I hope you haven't killed him. He isn't too strong, you know. Uh, don't worry. There. Oh. Now. Now, Mr. Farnsworth, would you mind telling me... On whose head have I the dubious pleasure to be sitting? Now that, sir, is Milford Brooks III. His policy with this company is in the amount of $2 million. Wow. Yes. And the boy seems bent on committing suicide. Dollar, I want you to stop him. Uh, what do you want me to do? Threaten him with death? Anything, anything. The conditions of his policy are such that we would be forced to meet with a claim in the event of his suicide. Oh, I say, Dollar, sitting on his head that way, aren't you in danger of smothering the boy? Smothering him doesn't worry me, but these crew haircuts don't make very comfortable cushions. I'll move down a little. Now, there. Powell had been an A-list crooner in the 1930s, starring in both musicals and comedies at Warner Brothers and Paramount. He was also the MC of Radio's Campana Serenade. His career changed in 1944 when Powell was cast as Raymond Chandler's private eye, Philip Marlowe, in Murder, My Sweet. The Lux Radio Theater broadcast an adaptation on June 6, 1945. There's nobody here, Marriott. This whole setup looks like a tryout, seeing if you obey orders. Let's pull around the corner and... I caught the blackjack right behind my ear, and a black pool opened up at my feet. Two weeks later, Powell was starring as Richard Rogue in Rogue's Gallery on NBC. I uh, felt pretty good. Like the series was a summer replacement for the Fitch bandwagon. When Fitch returned in the fall, Mutual Broadcasting picked the show up. It lasted for one season on Mutual, before returning for a final 13 weeks on NBC in the summer of 1946. Simultaneously on film, Powell made Cornered, Johnny O'Clock, To the Ends of the Earth, and Pitfall. Wanting to get back into network radio, he recorded this dollar audition just before Christmas. And it all adds up to a little matter of $1,182.23. Which you may say, Mr. Farnsworth, is a lot of money for one man to spend in two days. But you must bear in mind that the amount of steak was $2 million. And you know the price of steak these days. It might comfort you to know that I just returned from the hospital. Brooks was strong enough to make a full statement, which you will find enclosed. This in itself should prove sufficient to establish evidence of attempted fraud against your company, allowing you to immediately avoid his policy. It uh, boils down to one sentence, to wit. Brooks and Janelle wanted to get rid of Hatcher so that they could live happily ever after. Knowing those two, they never had a chance. And oh yes, that, uh, <laughs> that miscellaneous item, the one for $318, it... Uh, it was a bracelet for a certain party who made this special investigation for me very special. Oh, if you want a receipt for this item, I'll send you a lock of her hair. Yours, uh, mm, truly, Johnny Dollar. Powell took the lead in Blake Edwards' NBC production of Richard Diamond, Private Detective. And Dollar was left without a star. So with the
final signature on his expense account, Dick Powell as Johnny Dollar has just closed the books on his first adventure in this new CBS series. In February, Charles Russell was cast in the lead. CBS programmed the series on Fridays at 10.30 p.m. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, debuted on February 18, 1949. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. The next half hour has its baggage packed to take a trip with America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, he is just an expert. At making out his expense account, he is an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, East Coast Underwriters, Terminal Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of my expenditures in the investigation of the Paracoff policy for your company. Expense account, item one, plane fare to Benton, Ohio, $40.04. Expense account, item two, plane fare, Benton back to Hartford, $40.04. Explanation, purchase two one-way tickets instead of saving money by purchasing one round trip. Because of the type of case I'm usually assigned, I never press my luck by buying round trips. This time, I was almost right. Early programs indicated that he'd been a Pinkerton. Dollar was a licensed investigator, more than willing to show his ID to the cops. Tipping silver dollars was part of his character. Russell played him sarcastic and irreverent. Johnny got both the bad guy and the girl, and always on the expense account. Norman MacDonald directed the series between July and November, with Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd doing the writing. Good evening, sir. Hello. Do you have a reservation for Johnny Dollar? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, Mr. Dollar's in his room. He checked in about 8 o'clock. What? I guess I ain't the man I used to be. What room is he in? Oh, sorry, sir. I'm not permitted to tell you that. I can call. Oh, no, never mind. Let me have an envelope, will you? I'd like to leave my card for this Mr. Dollar. Uh, yes, sir. Here you are. Thanks. Here, just pop this in his box. The clerk popped the envelope into box number 207, so I popped myself into an elevator going up to room 207. I'd come to Benton to investigate a murder, and in just a matter of minutes, I found myself ready to commit one. Russell lasted until January of 1950, when film star Edmund O'Brien was brought in. Time now for Edmund O'Brien as yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Edmund O'Brien, starring in another adventure of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar. At insurance investigation, Johnny Dollar is only an expert. At making out his expense account, he's an absolute genius. Expense account, submitted by special investigator Johnny Dollar... Two, the Great Columbian Life Insurance Company. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during the investigation of the circumstances surrounding the murder of your policyholder, Loyal B. Martin, or 
How to Take a Vacation in Fairfield County. Expense account item one. $3.20 mileage from Hartford, Connecticut to the country estate of the deceased. I drove up a long cement driveway towards a mausoleum-type manor house. There were rolling green lawns liberally sprinkled with statuary. And the thought occurred to me that if he had spent much of his life here, the late Mr. Martin was most fortunate. He'd feel right at home in a cemetery. O'Brien's clipped voice and faint New York accent gave Dollar a rough quality. He became hard-boiled and cynical. When Wrigley signed on as sponsor in the summer of 1950, the program was airing live, coast-to-coast, on Thursdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm here to see Mrs. Martin. Oh, yes. Mrs. Martin. Uh Uh-huh. I'm afraid I'll have to disappoint you. But the show pulled an unimpressive rating of 6.5 against Dragnet, and Wrigley pulled sponsorship after eight weeks. I'm sure. Well, what time is she expected back? I have no idea. But it shouldn't be long. Do you uh, mind? Dollar continued on shifting time slots frequently. O'Brien's last broadcast was on September 3rd, 1952. 13 weeks later, CBS revived the series from Hollywood with John Lund. From Hollywood, it's time now for John Lund as... Johnny Dollar. Hi, Chet Graham, Johnny. Who? Wake up, boy. Chet Graham claims New York Mutual. Oh, hi, Chet. How are things? Bad. Johnny, I have to make a little trip out to the coast on a phony claim. I'll be gone about four days, but I need someone to hold down my office while I'm away. Can you do it? Well, that's not my line, Chet. You know that. Well, make it your line, Johnny. Somebody has to be here. Look, you can live in my apartment. You can use my tickets to wish you were here. You can even take my girl if you want. New York's swell this time of year. Can't you get anybody there? Oh, everybody's got the flu or busy or something. When do you want to leave for the coast? I'd like to get out on the noon plane today. Well, I can be down there by 11. Good. We'll probably miss each other, but just walk right in the office and make yourself at home. I'll call you from L.A. Have a good trip. Uh, by the way, what does your girl look like? Even your best dream was never that good. Just leave her phone number on your desk. John Lund in a transcribed adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Lund had starred with Olivia de Havilland in To Each His Own, Marlene Dietrich in A Foreign Affair, and Betty Hutton in The Perils of Pauline. Johnny Dollar to New York Mutual Underwriters Limited, Rockefeller Center, New York City. Attention, Mr. Chester Graham, claims and adjustments. Dear Chet, you probably read some of this in the Los Angeles papers, but they don't have the whole story. Maybe they'll never get it all. I hope not. I found out part of it, stumbled into the rest of it, and I'm trying to forget all of it. The following is an accounting of expenditures during your four-day absence and my investigation of the James Clayton matter. Expense account item one, $14.35 transportation Hartford to New York, where, as per your advice, I walked in your office, sat down, and made myself at home. But radio ratings were collapsing. When Dollar debuted in February of 1949, radio's highest-rated show, Walter Winchell's Journal, pulled a 26.5. Please sit down. Thank you, but I don't have time. 
Just under four years later, in December of 52, Jack Benny was leading radio's ratings with a 13. He said that your company wrote these policies and that he'd like to talk to one of you. In spite of this, in March of 1953, Wrigley once again sponsored the show Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Dollar peaked in May with a 7.3 rating. Among the writers who contributed scripts were E. Jack Newman, Les Crutchfield, Blake Edwards, Gil Dowd, Morton Fine, and David Freakin. One day, heaven extended its irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and it cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios, they might have for a season or two. There would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see. But on that occasion, the, tele- the radio industry had only to turn to its sponsors and said, we have something new for you to buy, something wonderful and three-dimensional now. So we're going to discard this little thing, radio, and the sponsors, very understandingly, nodded the head and bought the new product. Those actors of us who had been made our living in radio were completely discarded. There were some very bright young men in television, and there was an opprobrium to having been a radio actor. It was said that you were a ham, that you made faces when you acted, and that was true to a certain extent. You're saying something that has never been said before, to my knowledge, that the networks themselves killed the medium. Well, they had to. Yes, surely you had to destroy. It's the story of the little Jewish lady who had two chickens, and when one fell sick, she killed the the well one in order to make chicken soup for the sake. (laughs) (laughs) With television soaring, radio sponsorship interest dwindled. Forced to sustain costs, the networks canceled many of their remaining dramatic programs at the end of the 1954 season. Wrigley sponsored Dollar until August. Lund's last episode was The Upjohn Matter on September 19th. It seemed that, like many other radio shows, Johnny Dollar's time on the air was coming to an unremarkable end. Here's Dan Hayfley. Good afternoon and welcome to uh, Spurvex's first visit to the Thousand Oaks Library. Today our guest is a man who has been involved in writing, directing, but would you welcome officially Jack Johnstone. Jimmy Stewart with a welcome to the Hollywood Star Playhouse, brought to you by the Bakers of America. Hollywood Star Playhouse. 30 minutes of mystery, thrills, drama by Hollywood's finest writers featuring Hollywood's top stars. Brought to you by the Bakers of America through the cooperation of your baker. Hello there, this is Wendell Niles.
Back in 1952, Jack Johnstone was directing the Hollywood Star Playhouse, an NBC anthology series airing on Sunday evenings. Perhaps because of the people involved, The Six Shooter with Jimmy Stewart was a real gratifying show to do. We did one episode on Hollywood Star Playhouse. Frank Burt wrote the script. Jimmy Stewart fit the part perfectly. And we simply did it as one number on this series. On April 13th, the show premiered a Western play starring Jimmy Stewart as Britt Ponsett. It was called The Six Shooter. The rain had stopped, but the wind still carried slivers of moisture that cut into the boy's face as he rode along the edge of the creek. When he saw the yellow light from the back of the office, he pulled up and slid out of the saddle. Then he tied a wet bandana under his eyes and walked to the door. All right, hi. Way up, both of you. And stay away from that shotgun. Now, now look here. You, get over to the safe. Better hurry up, mister. All right, now open it. I said to open it. All right, toss me that sack. Okay. Thanks a lot. You, you. Now. Then it was decided, later, to do a series based on the same character. That's really all there was to it. I directed the Hollywood Star Playhouse, so of course I directed the series then later. And Jim was a wonderful person to work with. I hadn't figured on going through Clay City... uh was an hour out of my way, and I was already a day late to the Jefferson Ranch where I'd signed on for the roundup, but when Scar started limping from a loose shoe, didn't have no choice. We had to head for the nearest blacksmith shop, so we turned north. losing a show. Well, let's have a look. All right, raise it up, fella. Come on, come on, boy. Yeah, it's split, mister. He needs a new one. Okay, boy. Can you take care of it? Oh, sure. Bring him over here. Hey, uh, what happened to Red, fella used to own this shop? Went to Nevada chasing silver. I bought him out. Oh, I... Stewart had wanted to do a radio show for years. In Britt Ponsett, he found the character and director perfect for him. NBC brought the series to air coast-to-coast on Sunday, September 20th, 1953, at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You a betting man, mister? Well, sometimes. Well, I say I weigh over 100... The first episodes were sponsored by Coleman Heaters, but by October 18th, NBC was sustaining production. The show was offered for sponsorship. There were some things that Jim would not accept, however. Chesterfield begged and begged and begged for months trying to get sponsorship. 
They even suggested tailoring their commercials in different than usual style. But Jim didn't feel that because of his screen image that it would be fair to, and this in all modesty, for him to be sponsored by a cigarette. I've forgotten there was another advertiser wanted very much to sponsor the show. But again, Jim and uh, also MCA, which owned the show, said no. Ever since I bought the shop, there ain't been a stranger come through Clay City but what he paid double for his first horseshoe. <laughs> he ain't sore, mister. No, no. The six-shooter remained on the air. NBC moved the show back 90 minutes to 8 p.m. in search of a larger audience. Liggett and Myers Tobacco wound up sponsoring Gunsmoke instead. Fella, they call the six-shooter? Doggone it. I've heard about you, mister. I've sure heard about you. <laughs> oh, would have recognized you if I'd have noticed your gun. NBC shifted the show to Thursdays after Christmas. It limped into the spring of 1954 before being canceled in June. I directed in the studio, wearing a pair of earphones with heavy muffs on them so that I couldn't hear any sounds directly. I'm thoroughly convinced it was the only way to direct a radio program for several reasons. It gave you much better control over the whole show. If the show began to run a little slowly, a guy could stand in the control room and wave his arms frantically until some actor looked up, or maybe all of them, and then they all sped up, and then the next signal was, you see. Whereas in the studio, right next to the actors, I could tell one actor to speed up just a little bit and another one perhaps even to slow down. If an actor was too close to Mike, I could push him back gently or move him in. Sound effect cues were never missed when I was in the studio. As a matter of fact, I preferred directing on CBS over the other networks simply because of the personnel involved. They were far more interested in, all they gave a hoot about was putting on a good show. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother, that villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow! What do you remember about the changing character of Johnny Dollar when Bob Bailey took over the Well, role? of course, I knew nothing of the show until I took over. Mm -hmm. I'd never even heard it. 
I knew John Lund, but I had used him on Hollywood Star Playhouse or one of those shows, and Eddie O'Brien. Eddie, incidentally, called me one day after Bob Bailey took over and said, would you give me Bob Bailey's phone number? I just want to tell you and tell him that I think he's doing one hell of a great job and so much better than anything I could have done that it's... <laughs> which was very nice. Bob Bailey was born on June 13, 1913, in Toledo, Ohio. Years later, John Dunning interviewed his daughter, Roberta. Actually, I started going down to the studio with my father when I had my learner's permit. He went down Sunday. We lived in Pacific Palisades. It was about a 20-mile drive down to Hollywood, down to the big Canex studios on Hollywood Boulevard. Now they've been turned into uh, the CBS television studios when radio went out but then I uh, would drive him down and stay with him the whole day while they got the show ready to go on the air during the week I enjoyed being down there and I think he was kind of hoping that I the business showbiz bug would bite it just never quite took many actors and actresses don't wish that for their children it's kind of a, a reversal of what you normally hear well my grandmother and grandfather were both in the acting business and so uh, I guess he was hoping that it would pass on to the next generation. He was born literally in a trunk, was on the stage by the time he was a year and a half old, was out in front selling theater bills for $5 a week when he was around eight years old. So he came from a long line. You say he was born literally in a trunk? How did that take place? On the stage in a trunk when uh, my grandma and grandpa were on the road. They played in Virginia City, Piper's Opera House. They were in San Francisco at the time of the earthquake. Mm -hmm. So that was before he was born. But later, they were still performing long after he was born. And also, his brother was in show business, Edwin Bailey. He produced Truth or Consequences all the time it was on the air. Bailey became a Chicago radio regular in the 1940s. He left Chicago to come out here under contract for 20th Century Fox. And he worked for 20th Century Fox, I guess, for a couple of years. During the war years, he was there. Then he went on to radio to do Let George Do It, which he played George Valentine. He did that on Don Lee, wasn't it? Don Lee Network? KHJ. That was what it's, the call letters were, KHJ, and that was downtown. All the big radio stations were within about a four-block area, downtown Hollywood. In 1943, Bailey was signed by 20th Century Fox to a one-year contract. He moved to Hollywood, where he appeared in seven films, including two with Laurel and Hardy. In 1946, he returned to radio, cast as Detective George Valentine and Let George Do It. Francis Robinson was his secretary, Claire Brooks and Eddie Firestone was Sonny. The show aired on Fridays at 8 p.m. from KHJ as part of Mutual's Pacific Network of Don Lee stations. Mr. Valentine? Yes? Mr. George Valentine? Yes, yes, come right in. Have a seat. Oh, here, take this one. It's softer. Oh, thank you. Oh, don't mention it. Have a cigar? Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. You're too young. Here, wait a minute. Here, have a chocolate bar with almonds. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Now then, what can I do for you? 
Well, I came to work for you. Work? I thought you were a client. Oh, no, sir. That's all right. I'll get it. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Good morning. Let George do it. How do you like that? Oh, I can make an appointment for you. I'm Mr. Valentine's confidential assistant. Well, that's nice to know. Oh, well, if you're that close, then come right up, Mr. Winters. Yeah, goodbye, sir. Well, how do you... Now, look here, bottom button. I'm Sonny Brooks. You can call me Sonny. Well, now, look here, Sonny. Who hired you? I come with the office. You see, Caleb, the elevator man, is my friend. He knew I was looking for a job, so he said, Sonny, whoever gets that office gets you, too. Yeah, well, you're too young, Sonny. Things may get a little rough around here. Oh, that's okay, sir. I'm a very rugged character. Now then, Mr. Winters will be here soon. Winters? The mystery writer? Yes, sir. Jonathan Winters. He just phoned. Oh. We can discuss my salary later. I'll go on the payroll as of today. Uh-huh. Whether I like it or not, huh? I have a feeling you're going to become very fond of me, sir. I grow on people. Yeah, like a wart. All right, Sonny, call an employment agency and get me a secretary. Well, that won't be necessary, sir. Why? Don't tell me you type also. No, but my sister does. Your sister? Claire. She'll be here soon to start to work. Well, say, does your whole family go with this office? Oh, well, I don't have much of a family. There's just Claire and me. Oh, well, that's tough, kid. But you're lucky. I haven't even got a sister. <laughs> tell you what, maybe we can sort of look after each other. How about it? Oh, That'll be swell, Mr. Valentine. I'll be glad to take care of you, sir. <laughs> hey, you're okay, Sonny. Oh, you like Claire, too. She's prettier than I am. Oh, perfect. It doesn't matter if she can type or take dictation just so she's prettier than you are. Mr. Valentine? Hmm? Oh, oh, yes, Mr. Winters. Come right in. Mr. Valentine, I'm here because... Well, it doesn't matter what the job is, Mr. Winters. I'm your man. Just throw your problem in my lap and I'll come up with the right answer. Mr. Valentine, I'm about to be murdered. Well, now, don't take it too seriously. A lot of people... Murdered? Murdered? You're... You're joking, I hope. I'm not joking. Oh, well... Well, that's a little out of my line, Mr. Winters. I mean... uh, Mr. Valentine, I... I... I have been murdered. Oh, Suffering cash. Yeah, don't stand there, Sonny. Do something. Call somebody. The police. The fire department. Yeah, I'll get a doctor. And Sonny. Yeah, Mr. Valentine? Don't get excited. Look at me. I'm perfectly calm. Billy held the role all the way into the mid-1950s when it finally went off the air. You going up, miss? Is Mr. Valentine's office in this building? Fifth floor, step in. Oh, thank you. You're, uh, you're clear, ain't you? At a CBS radio affiliates meeting in September of 1955, John Carroll, VP of Sales, predicted CBS's time sold would be more than the other three networks combined. The affiliates were given a segment and selling plan. The plan offered a five-minute segment for $2,100. Privately, many local stations grumbled. CBS had recently instituted income-slashing one-year contracts. Affiliate compensation was cut 20%. But Frank Stanton, president of CBS, boasted that since the birth of radio advertising, more than $8 billion had been spent on commercials. Eight million new radios had been manufactured in 1955, 45% more than the previous year. Five-minute newscasts would dominate the tops at most hours. The network was now selling news advertising at its highest rate in history. CBS was excited to announce evening programs with name-brand talent and the $64,000 question would air simulcast on CBS radio. 
they were also substantially increasing dramatic production. This included two evening strips at 8 p.m. that would air five nights per week for 15 minutes each night. One was to be yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Gerald Moore, who had just finished a successful run as Christopher Storm on TV's Foreign Intrigue. Moore recorded an audition on August 29, 1955. From Hollywood, it's time now for Gerald Moore as... Johnny Dollar. Al Harper at Corinthian, Johnny. Hi, Al. I've got a case here you won't like, but the commission will be good if we beat it. How big is the policy? $200,000. Oh, I'm afraid to tell you the rest. Why? It's in Hong Kong. Well, he haven't scared me yet. Johnny, the policyholders are people we've had trouble with before. I'm still not scared. No? You remember the Trans-Pacific Import-Export Office? Yeah. I sent flowers to the widow. Yeah. You still want to crack at us? No, but I will. Good. Al? Yeah? Now I'm scared. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Gerald Moore in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To the Home Office, Corinthian Liability and Risk, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Trans-Pacific matter. Item 1. Plane fare to Hong Kong. head of my rickshaw boy, I found Hong Kong to be a city without simplicity, overburdened with the tragic complexities of war. To fill the smallest want is a difficult and expensive task. There's a shortage of everything, food, water, health, places to live. Both the island itself and the city of Kowloon over on the mainland were loaded with refugees from the interior, many of them lining the streets wailing for arms as we made our way to the offices of the American consul. Yes, it is true. Life is very difficult here. Now, where are they all going, Miss... Uh... Where is there for them to go? What do they do? How do they stay alive? Many of them don't. So many of them. It is not like this in, in your America? No. Has it ever been? Well, it was a civil war once. Books say that at times it was pretty bad. But not like this. Oh, never. Louisa. Yes, Mr. Grover. Would you ask Mr. Dollar to step in, please? Yes, sir. Mr. Grover. I got it, thanks. Well, Hartford, Connecticut, huh? Come in, Mr. Dollar. How are you, Mr. Grover? Sit down, sit down. Thanks. That's right. Insurance investigation, huh? Yeah. Well, now, what's your errand and what can the consulate do for you? Well, I'm here to investigate a claim filed by Trans-Pacific Import-Export Company. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Well, Will Meadows' firm was destroyed by fire last month. hundred percent. Or rather, $200,000 worth to my company. Do you know this William Meadows, Mr. Grover? Oh, I've met him at the American Club now and then. That's about all. Uh, insurance investigators are hired when... When the company uh... isn't satisfied with something about the claim. On this one, the fire was blamed on vandalism. 
Well, vandalism's become quite a popular pastime, across in Kowloon especially. Do you suspect some sort of fraud? Frankly, we do. Trans-Pacific once had a branch in Shanghai. When the war closed in on them, their warehouse was burned to the ground, just like this one here. Oh, I see. It occurred to some of the people in my home office that Trans-Pacific did much better by collecting on the insurance than if they'd gone through the expense of liquidating. Ah. I suppose coincidence won't quite do it, will it? Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Well, now, how can I help you? Well, I'd appreciate some phone calls or letters that would give me support from the fire department and the police. Mm. Yes, of course you would. <laughs> I don't suppose my problem seems very important out here. I was thinking that very thing. You know, it's always the case, Mr. Dollar. On the fringe of war, very few individual problems seem really important. Nor the individuals themselves. I trust you'll keep that in mind. I'll try to. Uh, Getting help, even time, from the police or fire brigade is one of those individual problems. But I'll do what I can for you. Anything will help, Mr. Grover. I won't take any more of your time. Oh, um, be sure to leave your number with my girl. I'll let you know about the official assistance. Well, I came right here from the airport. I don't have a number yet. Oh. Uh, No hotel? No. Pretty tough? As a matter of fact, almost impossible. The accidental places are always filled. Uh, I tell you, speak with my receptionist, Miss uh, Vedras. Is that her name? Vedras? Uh, Yes. Her father's half Portuguese, owns a small hotel. He might have accommodations. Good. I'll ask her. Thanks again. Oh, uh, Mr. Dollar, uh, just a matter of interest. Yeah? The case of Trans-Pacific Import in Shanghai. You say your company was forced to meet the claim there? That's right. Was it uh, investigated? The investigator they sent over was killed before he could build a case. Jerry was a rather flamboyant... Do you remember the thing that he made in Sweden? Foreign Intrigue. intrigue. Yeah, Foreign Intrigue. That was Uh, later. Jerry played Foreign Intrigue before Foreign Intrigue. He wore a raincoat or a topcoat on the outside. He never put his hands in it. (laughs) Seriously, he wore it as a cape. And he was very swashbuckly debonair. And he took that cape off and he sat down. He had a very beautiful voice. He was a a very good actor, good radio actor, better radio actor, I thought, than he was. But he was he was a joy because of his flamboyant attitude and well, how's everything going? (laughs) He is uh but he was marvelous. And a ladies' man, holy cow. <laughs> the ladies went bananas. They really did. Jack Johnstone was brought in to direct, but Moore didn't take the part. New auditions were held the next month. Each actor had 20 minutes to pitch themselves and perform a five-page audition script with Lillian Bayev. Among those who read were radio mainstays Paul Dubov, Larry Thor, Jack Moyles, Tony Barrett, Vic Perrin, and the man they selected. Bob Bailey. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. Mr. Dollar, this is Father Taggart. I'm calling you from Ossining. I'm one of the chaplains here at Sing Sing. Oh, yes, sir. What can I do for you, Father? Well, nothing for me, Mr. Dollar, but possibly for someone else. Michael Cairn, one of our inmates, asked me to contact you. Michael Cairn? Mm-hmm. You remember him? He wasn't sure you would. Old-time grifter and con man who got tied up with an insurance fraud a few years ago, blonde fella? Yes. Well, Michael wants to see you, Mr. Dollar. Could you possibly find the time to come up here? 
Oh, well, I don't know, Father. Is this something important? It is to Michael. Oh, well, uh, look, I'll be in New York sometime next month. Maybe I'll get a chance to stop off. Well, couldn't you possibly make it sooner? What's the rush? He's going to be there quite a while, isn't he? Not very long, I'm afraid. Michael is dying. All right, Father, you can expect me. Welcome to Johnny Dollar. Beginning tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, Ed Barth, Controller's Office. This is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Though you didn't authorize the investigation, Ed, I'm sure that once the facts are out, you will honor the following. Expense account, item one, $7.95. Train fare and incidentals, Hartford to Ossining, New York. I was admitted inside the prison and greeted by Father Taggart. He's a tall, mild-looking man, a Jesuit, I believe. He had a pass all ready for me, and he led me straight to the prison infirmary. Just in here. Michael will certainly appreciate your coming, Mr. Dollar. I hope it satisfies whatever's on his mind. I can't imagine what it would be. You know it was my investigation and testimony that put him in here, Father. He told me all about that, and I'm sure it has nothing to do with why he wants to see you. See, his lungs started to go about two years ago, and there's just been no way to arrest the condition. Does he know how close he is? Oh, yes. He's not afraid to die. Here we are, Mr. Dollar. Oh. What? Hardly the same man I remember, Father. He's had it bad lately. Lost a great deal of weight. Yeah. Asleep? Yes. Michael. Michael! Oh. Hey, Father. I brought someone to see you. What do you say? Hiya, Mike. Oh. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks, Johnny. Thank Father Taggart here. Yeah. He's an all right guy, Johnny. It's just like you. I always said you were the best insurance cop. <coughs> here, here, what's all this? I'm kicking out, Johnny. Didn't you tell him, Father? He told me, Mike. <laughs> Guess I didn't live right. I'll be back in a little while. Thanks, Father. You take it easy, Mike. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, lousy place to die, prison. But I ain't got my choice, thanks to you. Well, it's just that you picked to do a couple of things that the law and some insurance companies didn't agree with, Mike. Uh, I don't hold none of that against you. The guy does what he does. I don't know how to tell you this. <laughs> Maybe I better get the doctor. You shouldn't be talking so much. No, no, wait. Johnny, look, you know I'm no crybaby. When the doctor gave me the news, I got to thinking. I ain't scared to blow out, you understand? I know, Mike, I know. Uh, it's just that... I had a wife once, a long time ago when I started out. Oh? Yeah. Then I just kind of drifted out of her picture one day. Ain't <coughs> got a cough drop, baby. <laughs> yeah, I guess it wouldn't cure what I got. Anyhow, I, I got to do something for her before I... Well, Johnny, I lay here and I get myself an idea. Yeah, Mike? Johnny, if there was some real easy money lying around, would you pick it up for me? Depends on how clean it is, Mike, and where it's lying. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. It, 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 well, it's clean, all right. You can find that out for yourself. 
All right. Now, now listen. Till they moved me down here in the infirmary, I roomed upstairs with Giorgio Penny. You know him? No, don't believe I do. And a car thief from the Hay States. He got his sabbatical three weeks ago. Paroled. Uh-huh. Well, I've been in the camp with a lot of guys, but Jojo Penny <laughs> takes a cake. He's got a little old five-year trick to put in. <laughs> this Jojo, he does it like a vacation. You know, a real picnic. <laughs> Every time he gets a chance out in the yard, he's taking sun. So he don't get the color, see? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <coughs> when they push him in with me, I notice this. And I get to going over in my head. Yeah. Why does a guy whistle in a cell block, Johnny? Why is he treating it like a rest home? Short term. He's got something outside waiting. That's it, baby. He's got something waiting for him outside. Something that he knows will keep safe. Money. Thought you said this was legitimate, Mike. It is, it is. Now, wait. I didn't ask Jojo anything about this. No, I figured it out myself. Then a couple of times I hear him yelling in his sleep. McCormick, he yells. McCormick. Huh? Make sense now, Johnny? Not yet. Ah, the big heist, Johnny, the big heist. A few years ago, a rich guy named McCormick out on Long Island or someplace like that gets turned over for $100,000 worth of jewelry. You remember? Vaguely. Eh, well, I'm thinking that Jojo Penny was in on it somewhere. Mm. Else why would he be singing and whistling and chilling himself around this fly trap for five years? Else why would he be talking about that when he's sleeping? McCormick, McCormick. Yeah. Maybe you've got something, Mike. Ah, I know I got something, Johnny. And you got something, too. It... <coughs> oh, no, Mike. Take it easy. Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Don't you see? The insurance company must have a reward out. They always do. A reward. Yeah, but Mike, look. I tell you, Joe Joe is the Ginzo that done the job. Or he knows who did it. So you look into it. Work on it. Maybe turn up the stuff and get the reward. Good clean coin. Yeah. Yeah. Send half of it to my old lady, will you? You keep the rest yourself. What'd you say? Huh? Will you? Ego factati mihi ad apostolia, sedi tributa indulgentiam plenarium. Mike Kern died three hours later. The last living thing he did was wink at me. Johnny Dollar re-debuted over CBS Airwaves at 8.15 p.m. on October 3, 1955. The show would have 75 minutes of weekly time. It allowed for tremendous character development. To pen these scripts, Jack Johnstone tapped into his old writing mainstays. E. Jack Newman wrote The McCormick Matter. John Dawson. E. Jack Newman? E. Jack Newman. Right. Yeah, that's his real name. E. Jack. He had written a lot of scripts for previous Johnny Dollar series. And when CBS decided to do the series again, they asked him for scripts. And he took some of the old half-hour scripts that he'd previously written and broke them down into five 15-minute shows. They asked me to direct the things. He wrote excellent scripts. Les Crutchfield wrote beautiful scripts. Sidney Marshall wrote some great scripts. A couple of other writers participated in the series. 
But then television began to beckon and began to pay about five times as much as CBS could pay, and they became just unavailable. And finally, one day, I sat down at the typewriter and decided I'd better write a script in an awful hurry. This was the Laird Douglas Douglas of Heatherscoat matter. Laird Douglas Douglas of Heatherscoat was a dog. And I had a dog at the time named Lady Odidi's Rolimar Mim, <laughs> believe it or not. So I finally cooked up this wild story involving these two characters, and it wasn't until the last episode of, of the five that they were revealed to be dogs, you see. But that's when I took over the writing, but E. Jack Newman wrote a great many of the original the first scripts during the time when it was a 15-minute show five a week. Expense account item two, $14.20. Train fare and incidentals, Ossining to New York. I arrived at 2.15, dropped my bag off at the New Western, and went over to the Metropolitan Police Station to find out what I could about the McCormick matter. It was all pretty much as old Mike had told me. A Julian McCormick living on Long Island had suffered a $100,000 jewelry burglary in 1951. Twelve suspects had been arrested and released. The case was marked open and unsolved. Allied Casualty had been the insurance company involved. This is the adjustment office. Frank Porter speaking. My name's Johnny Dollar, Mr. Porter. I'm an investigator. Oh, I think I've heard of you, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Wonder if you could give me a little information about a claim your company handled in 1951. A man named Julian McCormick out on Long Island. Gee, well, long time ago. Uh, what about the McCormick claim? I might have some information on it. I don't know yet. It's a long chance. I'm at police headquarters, and I notice you investigated for the insurance company. I'd like to talk to you. Yeah, sure, but it's kind of late today. Tomorrow, okay? Well, you can tell me this right now. Is there any reward being offered? Gee whiz, kind of falls my sails. How's that? Well, asking about a reward. You sound like you can make full recovery and want to make sure that you'll be paid for it. Well, I said it was just a long shot. How about the reward? Well, that's pretty standard with us on cases like this. Yeah, I think it's 7500 something like that. I'm not sure. Where are you staying? New Weston. Well, I'll look it up, get the exact figure, and call you there. How'll that be? Fine, thanks. That'll be fine. Before I left the police station, I turned out a mug on Jojo Panny. He was a big, broad-shouldered lad with plenty of beef and a list of petty convictions, four of them in New York State. The last one was for carrying concealed weapons... His parole status was good, though, and the parole officer furnished me with his home address. The Allen Hotel, rates day, week, or month, 115th Street. It's open, it's open. Come on in. Hiya. Looking for Joe Penn. Yes, sir. That's me. My name's Johnny Dollar. Yeah? I, uh, I just came down from Ossining. I saw a friend of yours up there, Joe. Who was that? Mike Cairn. How's Mike? Not so good. He died today. Uh, it's too bad. He was a nice old coot. Kind of liked him. Said if I ever saw you to say hello. Uh-huh. He didn't give you my address. No, I got it from the parole office. You some kind of cop? 
No, I work for an insurance company. Oh. Buy you a drink? Sure. Why not? Expense account, item three, four dollars even for drinks. I wanted to look at Jojo Panny and talk to him and figure out how I was going to go about getting information from him. And the more I saw and the more he talked, the more I wondered if whatever he might have said about the McCormick case in his sleep happened to some other McCormick. After all, a man with a long list of petty thieveries is hardly ever involved in a slick, big-time safe-cracking job. That takes another kind of talent, and one I was sure that Jojo didn't have. So i just been taking it easy and looking around. I figure I can get a job pushing a truck or maybe a cab if I'm lucky. Got to get something to do. Parole officers kind of hard-nosed about things like that. Yeah. Drink up. Want one more? Oh, no, no thanks. Three's my limit. Like to keep in shape. Sure. Say, uh, you got anything to do? Nothing special. Why? Thought I might go out to Long Island later on tonight to say hello to an old friend of mine. If you haven't got anything to do, come on along. <laughs> You're okay, bub. Sure, why not? Uh, this friend of yours, he's an ex-con too? No, he never did any time. Just a friend. Want to say hello is all. Oh. Rich fella. His name's Julian McCormick. You're, uh... Very big with the hellos around here today, aren't you? Anything wrong, Joe? You probably are. Why do you say that? Nothing. Ever know anyone named McCormick? I knew a guy named Arnie McCormick once back in Salt Lake City. We were pals for a while. Oh. Yeah. Arnie was killed in the war. He'd got himself drafted in the infantry. Maybe he's related to my friend Julian McCormick out on Long Island. He wasn't related to anybody, not that bird. I'm leaving. I want to get up early tomorrow. Why not come with me? <laughs> Thanks for the drinks. He drifted off down the street and left me standing there. And one thing I was sure of, he had the name McCormick on his mind. Whether it was the right McCormick or the right case, I didn't know. Anyhow, he was my one big lead. So I was back at his hotel early the next morning and talking to the desk clerk. Penny, did you say room 210? Yeah, that's right. Vamoose. What? He left bag and baggage last night. Well, where did he go? What's his forwarding address? He didn't say. Just left. Now, here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about tomorrow's episode. Thanks. Tomorrow, there's living proof that a pretty girl can be just as dangerous as a pretty girl. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Everybody sort of ate at the same restaurant. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is friends. It was the group mixed together that one would work at one station. A lot of times, I have a couple of the old scripts here. And I see where old people like Virginia Gregg and uh, Jack Crucian, they were on several shows, most of them, as a matter of fact. People would just work the same show. The show was unsponsored. Many of Hollywood Radio's bests were involved, like Virginia Gregg. 
Yeah, usually. How soon in advance would you get a script for? You a lady? never got a script in advance. Didn't get one uh -uh. when they rehearsed it. In the early like, days, you went in and you had a conference, a story conference, and a, a read through, mm -hmm. and you'd say, "Well, I don't think she would say this, or wouldn't it be better if?" And you could talk a show over and have a first read through. Mm -hmm. When radio kind of faded out toward the end there. Mm -hmm particularly with Jack. Now, Jack Webb really did have a stock company. He used the same people. And so did Jack Johnstone, pretty much. Mm -hmm. They would say such things as, now, next week you're doing an Irish, and I'd say, I don't do Irish, and they'd say, sure you do. <laughs> and I would get it, and you do Irish. On most of those shows, I doubled other mm -hmm. parts, too. Maybe if an old charwoman came in or something, I'd do those. Did you often uh, use an alternate voice then on these mm -hmm. shows? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And give us a charwoman's voice? Now? Sure. Oh, well, you'd have to hand me a script and say, here, do her. Take this bucket. Yeah. And what do you want her in? Japanese, Swedish? Oh, you do German, the dialects, Jewish. Uh, dialects and, uh, and everything. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. It's Frank Porter, Allied Casualties. Yes, Mr. Porter. Well, call me Frank, Johnny. Uh, you phoned yesterday about the McCormick matter. I got all the stuff about the case on my desk here, and we're still offering $7,500 reward. Thanks for confirming it, Frank. Sure. Uh, you got a tip or something? An old con named Mike Cairn gave me a tip about a guy named Jojo Panny. I'm working on it. Well, need any help? No, not yet. I might. Jojo pulled out of his hotel last night, bag and baggage. Oh, what are you going to do? I'm on my way to Long Island. Huh? I want to talk to McCormick himself. Oh. Uh, Johnny. Yeah? Let me give you a tip for your own good. Don't bother Julian McCormick unless you've really got something. Could be dangerous. I think I've got something. <laughs> Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Item four, $10 deposit on the car I rented to drive out to Julian McCormick's home on Long Island. And judging by the looks of the place, a safe full of $100,000 worth of jewelry would feel right at home. It was a mansion, and the rugs on the floor were an inch thick. I'm sorry I've kept you waiting. Mrs. McCormick and I were packing for a little trip to Europe. Sit down, please. Thanks. Going to be gone long? Oh, we usually spend several months a year over there. We're a bit late this year. Our reservations are for next week. I envy you, Mr. McCormick. Dollar the name? That's right. Forgive me, but I don't seem to recall having heard of you before. Oh, that's okay. We never met. I'm an insurance investigator. Oh, really? Am I being investigated or something? No, no, nothing like that. It's just that I might have a lead on that jewelry that was taken from your home a few years ago. Well, that's wonderful. You must tell me about it. Can I make you a drink? No, thanks. You're from the insurance company, Allied Casualty? No, no, I'm not. I'm an independent investigator. Well, 
Why should anyone feel it necessary to call in a... Oh. Oh, I see. There's a reward, of course. That's right. Yes, of course. But now, tell me, how can I help you? Well, I'm just checking a few things, Mr. McCormick. I haven't even gone over it with a man who handled a case for Allied. Possibly I have run into something that'll help. I don't know. I'd like you to tell me what happened. My safe was opened and my jewelry taken. I mean, how it happened. Well, it was right in this very room. That's the wall safe there. Uh-huh. Mrs. McCormick and I had just returned from our honeymoon. Five years ago, it was. Yeah? All I know is that when I stepped into the library here that morning, the safe was open and everything was gone. Whoever did it was extremely clever and quiet, I must say. Was the safe cracked? No, no, no. It was just opened. Someone figured the combination or something like that. Well, who knew the combination at the time? Only myself, Mr. Dolan. You're sure of that? Why, of course. I see. I reported it to the police right away here on Long Island. Then some men from New York City were here, too. And your insurance company? I reported it to my insurance company immediately. They had a man on the scene as soon as the police. A uh, Mr. Porter. Frank Porter? Yes. Do you know him? I've talked to him on the phone. I haven't met him. A very nice chap. He worked very hard trying to recover it. I'm sure he did. Did they have an adjuster? Yes. Uh, how much did you collect, if you don't mind? Not much. What do you mean? Well, it was unfortunate. By keeping that much jewelry in a small house safe, it seems I violated the clause in the contract. It should have been kept in a safety deposit box or some such. Consequently, the matter went into litigation. I'm afraid the court found me at fault. I collected only a part of the insured value, $20,000. So, you can see, I'd certainly welcome a recovery. Sure. The jewelry was in the family a good many years. I had given it to my wife, and I... Well, a man hates to lose things he loves. Yes, I understand. Was Mrs. McCormick here the morning it happened? Oh, yeah? I'd like to talk to her. She's terribly busy, but if you think it's sufficiently important, I'll call her. No, never mind. I'm curious, Mr. Dollar. This case has been closed a long time, at least... No one's contacted me or asked me for any information about it for at least four years. What opened it? A man named Mike Cairn. Huh? Who's he? An old convict up at Ossining who shared a cell for a while with a man named Joe Panny. Uh-huh. Cairn died yesterday, but before he died, he told me he thought Panny had something to do with it. He'd heard him mention your name. Well, it seems to me you should talk with this Joe Panny. I did, and I will some more. As soon as I locate him again. Right now, he's missing. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, thanks for the time, Mr. McCormick. You let me know if you learn anything? Sure. Do you honestly think you can recover that jewelry? With any luck at all? That would be wonderful, wonderful. You think so? Why, yes, of course. Mrs. McCormick might be glad to know about it, too. What? You said it was her jewelry. I don't know why I said that to him, just a sudden impulse. But he wasn't smiling when he walked me to the door, shook my hand, and patted me on the shoulder. I had a funny feeling that Mr. Julian McCormick was scared like a rabbit of me. I drove back to the city, had lunch at Walgreens, and dropped into Allied Casualties, New York office, to pick up the folder on reward information. I met Frank Porter and liked him right away, a big red-headed man in a tweed suit. 
Gee whiz, Johnny, it makes me feel older than ever doing this. How come? Well, I weighed 15 pounds less when this case started, June 1931. Ah, here we are. Uh, these are pictures of the stuff. Uh-huh. Now, that one they call Tierra del Fuego. <laughs> Some necklace, hmm? I can see why. Yeah, and uh, this one was called Imperial, in the royal family of Russia at one time. And uh, this is the other one, Placid. Beautiful stuff. Oh, you can say that again. That almond? Well, that's about the size of it, Johnny. $100,000 gone. Yeah. Help any? Sure. It's nice to know what I'm trying to find. Well, I hope you have better luck than I did. Yeah. Say, uh, who was the police officer on the case? Uh, Martin. Duels Martin. Out of Central? Yeah. We ran down every lead we could find, big and small. The file said you made 12 arrests. Yeah, something like that, but not one of them panned out. Had to let them all go. Martin requested pickups on every big-time jewelry man in the country. Now, I don't think one of them was overlooked. Well... No, Johnny, somebody just simply walked in that house, opened the safe as neat as you please, and walked right out with all of this. Very slick job. Had to be an experienced man. Well, might have been a first job for someone just starting in. He got lucky. Yeah, we thought of that, and we didn't think much of it after a while. Frank, you... Gee whiz, Johnny, you know, nobody could be that lucky. Case the house, know exactly where the safe was, know what was in it, get in, open it up, and get out without anybody, servants, the McCormicks, or any of their friends even seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that wasn't even the hardest part, you see. Not one scrap of this stuff has ever turned up anywhere. Yeah, well... Anywhere. Now, what, a, what did whoever took it do with it? Did he break it down, sell it overseas? What? Not a trace of it. Imagine that. Imagine. You know what I think? I think the guy who swiped all this stuff still has it. I think he's sitting around waiting for it to cool off. Could be. Uh... But it's never going to cool off, Johnny. There isn't a city in this country or across the ocean that isn't on the lookout for these pieces. I suppose. Now, sooner or later, hot boy or lucky boy, well, whoever he is, will make a move. <laughs> Meantime, we just wait. Unless, of course, uh, you've got something for us to look into. Uh, not yet, Frank. Yeah, well, when you have, we'll be right with you all the way. Good, good. How about a drink? Uh, take a rain check. Okay. But remember, we got a whole floor full of lawyers upstairs. They can get up warrants, writs, seizure orders, anything you might want. Yeah. You just let me know when you get somewhere and we'll go to work. I'll do that, Frank. I know Jack Johnstone. He never went in the booth. He directed as they did 400 years ago. He'd put <laughs> earphones on at his own booth and stood right in the studio with you, which most of us found <laughs> extremely annoying. He was a very affable man, but I said, gosh, hey, your credit should read directed and conducted by, because he, <laughs> he'd wave and point and whatnot, and he insisted on certain weird techniques that after a while you rebelled at, but if you wanted to work, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> that was Parley Bayer in 1984 with Chuck Shaden. Bayer is best remembered as Chester on radio's Gunsmoke and Mayor Roy Stoner on TV's Andy Griffith Show. Another regular was Forrest Lewis, the man on the other end of the call with dollars. Gee whiz, kind of falls my sails. How's that? Well, asking about a reward. You sound like you can make full recovery and want to make sure that you'll be paid for it. And if you listen closely, you can also hear him as old Mike at the hospital. When the doctor gave me the news, I got to thinking. I ain't scared to blow out, you understand? I know, Mike, I know. Uh, it's just that I had a wife once, long time ago when I started out. Oh? Yeah. A smart thing E. Jack Newman wrote into the dialogue was making sure Frank Porter knew who Johnny Dollar was when he phoned. It helped give the character credibility. This is the adjustment office. Frank Porter speaking. My name's Johnny Dollar, Mr. Porter. I'm an investigator. Oh, I think I've heard of you, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? 
During the Johnny Dollar days, which we recorded out here in Hollywood, Bob McKenney for a long time was my engineer. Excellent engineer. Do you know Bob? Mm. We did not edit those tapes. We recorded the show just as though they were live. A few actors resented this in the very beginning, but most of them got to like it because it got much, much better performances. If we got a third of the way through a program and somebody fluffed, we went back to the beginning, started all over again. But as I say, it got good performances because everybody was on his toes. As a result, we had no editing problems on the Johnny Dollar show. I left Frank Porter and went back over to the parole office to see what had developed with Joe Panny. After all, if he didn't report in, he'd be in violation of his parole, be in real trouble. But nothing had developed. He hadn't put in a change of address, nothing. So I went back to my hotel and had some dinner. Then I shaved, changed my clothes. Expense account, item five, dollar and a half, cab fare. I garaged my rented car, went back to Central Police Station and pulled out the mug on Joe Panny once more hoping to get a line on some friends or relatives of his where he might be staying. Up till then, things had been going pretty routine. Then a clerk from the parole offices stepped across the hall. Hi, Mr. Dollar. Hi. Thought it was you I saw in here. I wasn't sure. How's it going? Fine, fine. Talk to your friend Jojo Panny yet? Not today. Why? Well, you seemed awful anxious to talk to him, is all. I am. Why don't you go see him? You're playing games. I've been trying to find out where he is all day. And I already told you. You what? Sure, I gave it to you half an hour ago when you phoned. When who phoned? Sure, about half an hour ago. Look, Joe Panny called in and told me his address. Yeah? I no sooner set down a phone and you call in and said, this is Johnny Dollar. Have you heard from Joe Panny? What? I said, yeah, and I told you his address. That's all. What address did you say? The Allen Hotel on 115th Street. Same place he was before. What's the matter? You forget? <laughs> It took me ten minutes to get from the police station over to the Allen Hotel. Ten minutes of wondering who'd put in that call and use my name. I went up the stairs, two at a time, up to the second floor. And right at the top of the landing, I bumped into a dark-haired woman wearing a silver fur piece. Oh! Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't see you. It's all right. You hurt? No, not at all. Please, let me go past. I'm in a hurry. Yeah, I'd be in a hurry, too. What do you mean? The gun. What? You should carry it on the inside of your purse. Oh, I didn't... Suppose I take it. No, let go of me. Fingernails, huh? Give it to me. All right, take it. She'd given it to me, all right, right on the side of the head. It didn't knock me out, but it did knock me off balance, so I tangled up with a hall table. And that gave her plenty of time to scurry down the stairs while I got out of the furniture and back on my feet. By the time I got down the stairs and out on the street, she was nowhere in sight. Hmm... No one yelled, I'm shot. No one did anything but what they were already doing. Hi. Where were you just now? You weren't here at the front desk. I was out back eating my dinner. Why? Oh, nothing. You happen to see that woman who just ran through here? Well, no. Tall, dark-haired woman, about 30, wore a mixed stole. Me? Yeah. Oh, you're kidding. And this giant... You still looking for Joe Panny? He lives here again, doesn't he? Yeah. Have you seen him? Where is he? Out. I sat down with myself and waited. A half an hour later, when the clerk went back to finish his dinner, I stepped over to the desk and borrowed his passkey and went back up the stairs to room 210.
didn't need the passkey, and I didn't need to doubt the clerk. Joe Penny wasn't there. But all of his things were. The curtains were drawn and the windows closed. Every drawer had been pulled out of every dresser. The mattress on the bed was slipped from top to bottom, and the rug had been ripped and turned over. Expense account, item six, one dollar, one drink. For me. I left JoJo's room, went to the nearest bar, sat down, and had a drink. A scared victim, a missing con, a dark-haired woman wearing a mink and a gun, and other things. Right then and there, I decided that Mike Cann's tip had been pretty good at that. so much greatness happening in audio fiction, it can be hard to find the best of the best. So why not have someone do the work for you? On Radio Drama Revival, our team of experts showcase the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. And then we ask the creators the questions you'd want to ask. Their relationship is important to you. I'm shipper trash, David, you can say it. It's okay. <laughs> And my question to you is, can it be Keisha time? Like, what do you dream about achieving not only for your neighborhood, but for yourself? Mm. Oh, day. <laughs> Maybe before you realize you'd want to ask them. Do you think souls exist? I personally do. When I ask you to visualize time, what do you see? Yeah, okay. I guess I've got quite a dark sense of humor in some ways. Um, Do you feel that you think about death more often or differently than you would otherwise now that you've been playing these characters? Find great new audio fiction by finding us at radiodramarevival.com. By 1955, those still involved in dramatic radio had advanced the medium's production to a high art. For Roberta Bailey Goodwin, then a teenager, accompanying her father to weekly recordings became a family ritual. She got a first-hand look at the artists plying their craft. What can you tell me about Jack Johnstone? Now, he was more closely related to that series than anybody else. Well, all the time I've ever went down or being aware of the show, he was always there. The two scripts I have, dated 55 and 57, both have his name down here as being producer-director. As long as Dad was there, he was there. What do you remember about him and his, his directing methods? Oh, he was marvelous to watch. He would sit behind a lectern uh, on a high stool, and he would have the script in front. And sometimes he would remind me of a snake. He would weave back and forth on this on the stool, giving what they call cues. You would have to cue the music, cue a sound effect, cue the actor by rather pointing at them. And sometimes he'd be like an orchestra leader and he would just, 
it was hypnotizing to watch him as he, he brought everyone together and worked everyone through. That's literally what he did. He was the director of the program. Like an orchestra leader, he orchestrated all these different individuals till they got the finished product. That, he was a wonderful man. Was he authoritarian? Yes, yes. In other words, when he told you to do something, you did it? Yes, yes. When he said, quiet, this was it, everybody knew that he meant it, yeah. And he was uh, just had a wonderful personality. How did he get along with your father? Oh, got along very well. We dine at his house, and like I said, I went to school with his daughter, and we would, you know, she'd spend the night my house, I'd spend the night over at their house. Of course, to us, our, our fathers weren't any different than the plumber, the mechanic. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. This is Dules Martin. Lieutenant Martin? Yeah, that's right. I got a message you called while I was out and left this number. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the McCormick case, Lieutenant. McCormick? $100,000 burglary out on Long Island back in 1951. Uh, I was the officer in charge. Who are you? Insurance investigator. I got a tip that an ex-convict named Joe Panny might have pulled it. I'm at Panny's hotel. Well, let me know how you make out. Say, listen, his room's been torn apart. Every inch of it's been searched. And when I came here tonight, I got socked by a woman with a gun. Give me that address. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Expense account, item seven, two dollars, two drinks. For myself and Lieutenant Dules Martin, NYPD. A big swarthy man who seemed to know what he was about. Martin looked over the damage done by the unknown ransacker of Joe Panny's room Questioned the clerk, who was unable to furnish any helpful information. Then, because Joe Panny was officially a parole violator, ordered a general pickup. They should be able to get our hands on him pretty soon, Dollar. I hope it's that easy, Lieutenant. Any reason why it shouldn't be fairly routine? No, just a feeling, I guess. I don't know. This whole matter has been flimsy. The tip was weak, but it seems to be paying off. Nothing fits, though. I don't quite get all this, Dollar. How'd you come in on this? Old Mike Cairn died up at Sing Sing two days ago. Before he went, he told me he believed Joe Panny might have pulled a McCormick burglary. It didn't seem likely then, Panny being a small-time auto thief and whatnot. But now it does, in view of what's been happening lately. Somebody sure wants something Panny might have, judging from that room. I never saw one taken apart better, an expert search job. Yeah. Hey, Lieutenant, when you pick Joe Panny up, I'd like to be in on it. He's my only lead in this case, and I want to talk to him again. And that's not asking too much. Now, Dollar, about this woman you saw. Pretty, about 30, dark hair, good dresser, wore a silver mink stole. The gun she socked me with was a little one, a 25 or maybe 32 automatic. Mm-hmm. You think she might have done the searching in Joe's room? What do you think? She was flustered and upset when I bumped into her, anxious to get away from the place. 
And, of course, the gun in her hand. Yeah. She sound familiar to you in this neighborhood? No, no. Could be anybody. Yeah. Well, that's about it, Lieutenant. Yeah? No, I got it. Oh, thanks. I suppose you talked to McCormick, got the full story of the burglary from him? Almost first thing, yeah. Well, I remember him when it first happened. Nice enough, but strange, I thought. This business about somebody phoning the parole office ahead of you to get Joe Panny's address that stops me, though. That's hard to figure. You sure you're telling me everything? Sure, I'm sure. That part sounds crazy. Not if somebody knew I was looking for him, wanted to get him first. But who? How should I know? Well, we'll see what we will see. Uh, Can I drop you anywhere? No, thanks. I'll walk. You let me know when you pick him up. Sure. Two days passed, and I didn't hear from Lieutenant Martin. I finally phoned in, and a supplementary had turned up no leads. Martin had men watching Joe's hotel. His former friends and acquaintances were being checked. Meanwhile, I decided to try and find out who the dark woman in the first stole had been. It seemed pretty obvious that she had just come from Joe's room, that she knew him or was connected with him in some way. So once more, I combed over Joe Panny's file at headquarters, this time looking for a woman's name. The only one mentioned was an ex-wife who had divorced him six years before. Her name was Iris Carter. At the Bureau of Vital Statistics, the marriage certificate and record of divorce proceedings gave me a composite picture of an unhappy and turbulent three-year marriage. It also gave me a general description of Iris Carter that could very well fit the woman I'd seen briefly in the hallway outside Joe Panny's hotel room. There was a six-year-old address to start on. No, ma'am, I'm not Eunice. Oh, no, you sure ain't. You seen her? I don't know. I really don't know her. Oh. Well, what do you want? I'd like to talk to the manager. I want some information. What's your name? Johnny Dollar. What kind of information are you looking for? Are you the manager? Yes, sir, I am. Well, I'm trying to locate a woman named Iris Carter. She might have used the name Iris Panny. She was married once to a man named Joe Panny. Lived here about six years ago. Were you here then? I was. Did you know her? I did. Did you know him? Yeah. He went to jail. Does she live here now? She don't. Do you have any idea where I can find her? I don't. Well, uh, do you happen to know if she ever Why worked do you want or... her? Just to talk to her. When did she move out? Oh, long time ago. Five years, maybe. Uh-huh. What's your business? Insurance. Oh, Well, what's up? Oh, nobody around here buys insurance. (laughs) Well, we don't have to go into that. If you can think of any place I might get a line on her, I'd appreciate it. It seems to me she worked at a bookstore down the street. Down what street? Out there. Block or two down that way. I think she worked there. I don't know. You can try. Thank you. I will. My, you polite. You tip your hat. Say, tell me, do you remember what she looked like? Sort of, yeah. Well? Oh, about as tall as I am. Nice, pretty girl. Blonde or brunette? Dark hair, almost black. Know any of her friends when she lived here? Mm, No. No, I couldn't tell you that. Why? Oh, I might look up one of them and ask her about her, that's all. You ask at that bookstore. I think she worked there.
did you freelance most of the time through this period? Well, in uh, radio days, yeah, that's what you did. Mm -hmm. I was doing as high as five shows a day, but I did mm -hmm. Brooksy with Bob Bailey. On, uh, uh, on uh, Let George Do It. Yeah, and I also did... You worked with him on Johnny Dollar, too, I think, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I enjoyed the people in it, too. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of loyalty, camaraderie. Mm -hmm. See, we were together so much. In the beginning, there were, oh, I think, 1,500 members of AFRA, then mm -hmm. AFRA. Uh, they figured about 400, 450 did practically all of the work. Mm -hmm. Of course, that wasn't very many, and we spent a great deal of time together, and that was before the days of tape, or even on tape, lots of times you spent many hours together. But we would have a break, you didn't have long enough to go anywhere, and we got to know each other very, very well, and our problems, they were like family. We'd hear about somebody who was having kind of a rough time, we'd go to one of the other producers and say, gee... Dick's having a hard time paying his rent. You think there's anything for him next week? And they'd get behind him, and he'd be working. So you'd all act as perhaps an agent for someone yeah, else, if you for could. everybody else. It really is a nice family kind of it relationship. It was. It was. We were very close and very loving, mm -hmm. very caring. The bookstore Iris Carter Panny had worked in was as dismal as the neighborhood. The proprietor, a Mrs. Olds, yielded a little more helpful information than Iris Carter's former landlady. Yes, Iris had worked there for about six months. She'd quit almost five years before. No, she didn't know where to find her. Expense account, item eight, one dollar and two cents, lunch. I had it in a neighborhood diner called the Showboat, a place where Mrs. Olds said Iris Carter had frequently eaten. The restaurant manager remembered Iris vaguely. She also remembered Iris's boyfriend. I asked for a description. She did better than that. She gave me his name, occupation, and address. An old rehearsal hall two blocks away. The five-man combo working there was really putting it up. Yeah... And the minute I saw him, I knew the boy wearing the trumpet was the one I was looking for. Just good-looking and smooth enough to go with a girl Iris Carter sounded like. Smooth trumpet, too. Okay, guys. Take five. I'm looking for Jack Lang. You found him. I'm Johnny Dollar. Could we talk a minute? That's about all I got, Mr. Dollar. Want to smoke? No, thanks. Oh, man. Gets real tired out about this time of day. Yeah, imagine it does. The way you put it on. Well, everybody do his own racket. <laughs> What's yours? Insurance investigating. Okay. Now what? Well, I've been asking around the neighborhood, and they tell me you once knew a girl named Iris Carter or Iris Panny. Iris Carter. Go on. I'd like to find her and talk to her, and I thought you might be able to help me. Go on. I want to talk to her ex-husband most of all. I thought somehow she might know where to find him these days. He's in the can. He was released three weeks ago. No. Any ideas? No. I thought finding her might be a shortcut to him. I wouldn't think so. 
They were all washed up when I knew her. When was that? Five years ago. She hadn't seen him for over a year then. She didn't have much use for him. I don't blame her. How long did you know her? No. We went together for a while while she worked at some crummy bookstore. Then she moved away, and I didn't see her after that. I think she said something about going back to Ohio. You think? I don't remember offhand. Well, let me put it this way. As far as I know, she's in no trouble. The one we want is her ex-husband. You'd be helping a lot if you could tell me where to find her. I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I sure wish I did. I'd like to find her myself. Why? Well, when she went with me, I... Well, wasn't any good. I think she just walked out because she was tired of losers. Sick up to here, you know what I mean? Can't blame her. He gave her a pretty bad time. I didn't do much better. But now I got something. It's just a little five-piece outfit. Not much, but something. I'd like to show it to her and say, Iris, this is mine. You kind of had it bad, huh? Bad as a guy like me can get it. I know I'll probably never see her again as long as I live, but... Boy, if another, another one like her ever shows up, I'm going to be ready, Dad. Ever see her? No, she must have been something. Yeah. Take a look. Nice, huh? Yeah. I take it back. What back? About seeing her. I've seen her. When? Where? Two nights ago in the hallway outside Joe Panny's room. You, you sure? I'm sure. She hit me with a gun before she left. The picture he had flipped out of his wallet was old and well-thumbed. It showed a sultry kind of face that could have been 20 or 30 or 40. A wide, frank, smiling, happy mouth. Not the kind of girl I would imagine could ever be married to a Joe Penny. But there was no doubt about it. She had been married to him, and I had seen her. On my way back to the hotel, I dropped in to check with Lieutenant Martin. Hi. Hi. Doing any good? Any lead on Joe Penny? Uh, nothing so far. This may take longer than I thought at first. Well, I've been out looking for his ex-wife. I didn't find her, but I found a few people who knew her. She was the one at his hotel the other night. Name's Iris Carter. You sure? Positive. I saw her picture. We better try to pick her up, too. I'll put it out right away. Fine. Well, I'll keep in touch. Oh, uh, wait a minute. Don't go. Huh? We had some action here today. Sit down. Thanks. Julian McCormick called up, reported you. He said you came out there bothering him a couple days ago. He said he doesn't want to be bothered. Well, I only talked to him to get his story on the burglary. And I told him as long as you didn't break the law, there was nothing we could do to stop you from investigating but he didn't like it. He seemed perfectly willing to cooperate with me when I talked to him before. Yeah, well, sometime these rich... Excuse me. Martin here. That's right. Well, how long ago? Okay. Well, they found your boy, Joe Panny. What? Yeah. He's on his way to the morgue. Harbor Patrol picked up his body a couple of hours ago, loaded down with slugs. Some case. And that ain't all, Johnny. Huh? His feet were burnt. Lieutenant Dules Martin was voiced by radio and TV veteran Herb Ellis. Herb mentioned Elliot Lewis. 
and silver screens. There used to be Lux and a Screen Guild Playhouse. I don't know if I can repeat the line, but Elliot Lewis had a great line <laughs> to uh, Loretta Young. To Lorene. Lorene's talking about one of the... Uh, yeah. I'll be up to, for your answer in the morning. That's right. I'll be up for your answer in the morning. And I'm not going to repeat what came out. What do you think about it? I'll be up your... And with that, it was looking at the page, looking at himself, looking at everybody and saying, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. All the way back to a seat. Virginia Gregg, who you've, you've met, she had the marvelous line of Tinger Frigger. Um, do you remember that? No. Tink, her, my trigger finger was itchy and her Tinger Frigger didn't work. <laughs> From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. Frank Porter at Allied Casualty. How's it going, kid? I don't know. You ever find Joe Penny? The Harbor Patrol found him floating around the harbor. He'd been shot and his feet were burnt. What? Gee whiz, torture. Well, what can I do to help? Find a girl who was once married to him. Joe Penny had a wife? Yeah, she wears a mink stole these days and carries a gun. She's tied up with it somewhere... Her name's Iris Carter. Iris Carter? You've met her? Just long enough to get slugged with her gun. Well, wait a minute. I'd like to get it all straight. Can I come over? I'll be here. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of a man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Expense account, item 9, $14 even, secretarial services. I dictated a detailed report of the $100,000 McCormick case. I did it for two reasons. One, to make certain that Allied and the New York police were thoroughly informed of my part in the matter. And two, to review the case for my own benefit. One of the key figures, Joe Panny, was a murder victim. Attached is a copy of that report. I tried to cover as closely as possible my conversation with Mike Cairn at Sing Sing when he tipped me off that Joe Panny had something to do with the McCormick burglary of five years ago. Also, one conversation with Joe Panny, his subsequent disappearance and murder. I had a copy for Frank Porter when he showed up at my room. He read it from top to bottom. Gee whiz, Johnny, if this isn't something. You come here for Joe Panny, looks like he did the McCormick job, now he's dead. You're stopped. What can you do? Find his wife, maybe? You're doing this at your own expense, aren't you? Oh, I think your company will pay for it in time. You have to recover the stuff. I know. You think you will? I think so, yeah. Well, your key man's dead. You have to start all over again. Maybe not. I don't really know whether Joe Panning was my key man or not. I still can't see a small-time auto thief working a big, slick safe burglary. Every indication is that he was the one. I know. I'd like to find that girl, Iris Carter, and talk to her about it. She's connected with it. Now, from what you say on the paper, yeah, very much. Oh, gee whiz, I feel like a fifth wheel. I'm not helping you a bit. 
You know, I handled this case for the company when it first broke. I worked with Lieutenant Martin for six months on it, and we didn't turn up a thing. You're on it three or four days, and you have all kinds of action. Well, I must have stepped in at the right time. Yeah. Johnny, Mm -hmm. somebody gunned Joe Panty down. Now, I know you like to work alone and do things your own way, but be careful if you stay on this. I get worried when somebody starts shooting. Oh, sure. I didn't get that, though. Why? If I keep on this... I wouldn't let it go now if my life depended on it. I'm going to find that woman, and I'm going to find the stuff. Sure. Well, gee whiz. Don't let anything happen to you. I won't. I talked some more with Frank Porter about the case. He repeated his offer in the name of Allied Casually to help if he could. I told him I'd take it up on it if anything came up at all. He left. I was at Central Police Station ten minutes later. And five minutes after that, Lieutenant Dules Martin was calling for the medical examiner's report on Joe Panny's death. A uniformed man brought it in. Martin shoved it across the desk at me. The M.E. says Joe Panny's been dead about 48 hours or longer. 225 slugs right through the chest, penetrated both lungs, one through the neck. It's a very neat shooting at that range. What range? Oh, at least 20 feet, maybe longer. Not many people shoot 25s that well. It's a little gun. A woman's gun. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Now, let's talk about that woman you saw around there that night. Now, you say it was Panny's ex. Yeah. Iris Carter. I don't know whether her gun was a 25 or 32. Well, think about it. I have. Now, look, don't get sore with me. It's just that she looks like better than ever for opening this case up. I put her on in all points. (sighs) Sorry I got riled. That's all right. Now, the M.E. thinks that Panny was killed before he was dumped in the water, possibly ambushed by someone he didn't know or didn't trust. If he's right about the range, that'd fit in. Someone who knew him would do it close up. Yeah. Hey, wait. You said his feet were burnt. Yeah, I got the pictures here to prove it. Yeah, take a look. These are the glossies. Uh-huh. Now, these are the burns here, Dollar. Right here. Here and here. Yeah. And he wasn't ambushed, exactly. Look, I don't know what he was. But this is the crazy part. He was already dead when this happened. No rope marks on his legs or wrists. You don't sit still for burning, no matter how tough you are. It's fascinating, huh? Someone shot him down, then tried to make it look like he was tortured for information first. Cover up. He's supposed to look like he knew something, or had something. And maybe he didn't know or have anything at all. Well, how do you feel? Lousy. If the burning was cover-up, then maybe the big search of his room was cover-up, too, to throw us off. Uh, uh, to throw you off. Not me. I wasn't in on it then. Yeah. Well, one thing that's genuine. What's that? The corpse. An hour and a half later, a witness was delivered to the office of Lieutenant Martin. His name was Edmund Thompson. He sold papers in the dock area. Both Martin and I looked at him twice, and I could tell both of us were doubting the credulity of anything he might have to say. Hi. Hi. My name's Martin. This is Mr. Dollar. Yes, sir. Glad to know you both. Now, would you mind telling us everything you saw the other night? Tuesday night. Yeah, it was Tuesday. Sure, why not? I... Saw this guy dumped in the water. We understand that. Can you tell us the circumstances? It's against the will of God. Yes, it certainly is. 
against the laws of nature, too. What did you see, Mr. Thompson? I prayed for them both. You tried, Dollar? When did you pray? Right after I saw it. Yes, sir. On the street, huh? No. I was on the vacant lot. I was cutting across towards the dock. Oh. Then I see this car pull up. Long black car. A lot of chrome on it. This fella jumps out and goes around at the back. He opens the trunk. And he pulls this other fella out. Hoists him up and he carries him over the dock. Then he just lets him go. Then you prayed. Then I prayed. I was a little too scared to do anything else. Uh, this car the man had. Long black one, a lot of chrome. Sedan or coupe? What's the difference? Two seats or one seat? One seat. Happen to get the license number? Uh. All right, all right, let that go. How about the man? Can you describe him? He stood there, looked down at the water, and started himself a cigarette. Well, what kind of a face did he have? Dark, light, a mustache, what? A devil's face. Oh, swell. Now, what does that mean? A devil? Mr. Thompson, do you understand that we want to apprehend this man, that he's responsible for one man's death, and that he might harm someone else? I'll pray for him. Pray for them all. Well, how was he dressed? Didn't notice. Hat? Don't know. Coat? Don't know. But he had a long black coupe. Do you know the make? Nope. Would you know him if you saw him again? Nope. Look, when you saw him dump a body into the water, why didn't you notify the police? Why should I? It's police business. Let them take care of their business. I'll take care of mine. Any of you fellas got a cigarette on you? You'd first go in and everyone would sit around a huge table. The whole cast would sit around the table. Have some donuts, have some coffee. They'd do a read-through. And then they'd do another read-through with a stopwatch. Because they had to allow time for commercials, even back then. And then they'd do a walk-through. And then they'd get ready to record it. Then I had to... Leave the room, go upstairs and get in the sound booth. And then I would sit in the sound booth where the sound, not the men who made the noise, but the men who recorded it, the engineers would sit. Mm -hmm. And then I'd watch the show up from the sound booth while they recorded it. You did it on tape then rather than live. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they taped it. And we're talking about sound effects that were essentially, were not live. I mean, they didn't have a band there, did they? No. They had them on cartridge or on Matt, tape. if you can picture one whole corner of a huge, and I mean a huge room, we're talking about 60 feet long by about 40 feet wide, completely covered with that acoustical tile from floor to ceiling and then carpeted with very thick pile rugs so that no sound would be heard. One whole corner is taken up with about five or six turntables, thing of bells that hung down, different doors that would open and close, big doors and little doors, cowbells, Oh, all sorts of paraphernalia, so the sound man could make any noise that he wanted to. One joke went. There was supposed to be a special sound effect come on, and instead of the right sound effect at the right moment, you heard the flush of a toilet come over the air. So from then on, one of the jokes in the studio was if somebody made a mistake, you'd reach up in the air and pull on an invisible cord to simulate pulling on the toilet cord. That was the local joke in there. If somebody made a boo-boo, you'd reach That's up great. and punk you know. 
I left Lieutenant Martin brooding over his witness and went out for a bite of dinner. When I called him later, he hadn't learned anything more, so I decided to call it a night and went back to my hotel. I found a note waiting for me from Jack Lang, the band leader friend of Iris Carter. Said he'd got a tip. She'd worked at one time at the Elmar Theater in the Bronx. If I learned anything, please let him know. He was still in love with her. Elmar Theater. I decided my night was far from over. Hey, you. Buy a ticket out front if you want to look at the girl. I only want to see one. Her name's Iris Carter. Does she work here? I just told you, go buy a ticket out front. Just tell me this. Does Iris Carter work here? Is the name familiar to you? Have you ever seen her or heard of her? You give me any more trouble, or clutch, I told you go off front. Can't you answer a simple question? I'm looking for Iris Carter. Iris Carter. You don't have to yell at mister. He never heard of it. What? Call me a cop, Gloria. Never this mind, guy's cop. giving never me... Never mind, I'll take care of him. Come on, you. Iris Carter, is that what you said? Yeah. I got to change. I got to get back on in five minutes. Then I'll talk to you later. You haven't got much to say. Stick around. I'll change back the screen. Okay. I'm Gloria Ward. Who are you? Johnny Dollar. What do you want with Iris Carter? I want to see her and tell her something. Tell me. Well, for one thing, her ex-husband's dead. What? Oh, better watch that screen. Oh, oh. Say that again. Joe Panny, her ex-husband's dead. No kidding. That no good bum is really dead. Yeah. Where can I find her? She don't work here no more. Hasn't worked here in four or five years. She quit. Well, where is she? You took over from the old man out there when you heard me mention her name. You've satisfied yourself that I'm really looking for her, so suppose don't you... Don't slip with me, mister. I'm not satisfied about anything. Where is she? She got herself married to a nice guy. Good for her. Is she in town? You sure you just want to see her and tell her Joe's dead? That's about it. I thought maybe she might be able to help me and the police find out who killed him. He was killed? Two days ago. They found his body today. How do you know about that? Are you a cop? I'm an insurance investigator. And you have to see it? You want it put in writing? Don't get in a huff. What I'm getting at is this. Quick change, huh? Now listen. Iris is good. You know what I mean? And she's married to a nice guy now. Will any of this make her trouble? Not if she hasn't done anything wrong. Well, I can tell you she hasn't. If it does make trouble, it'd be a shame... She set up nice, and I like to see a girl set well, don't you? Certainly. I haven't seen her almost since she left here, but... Well, you look like a right kind of guy. I believe you. Thanks, Gloria. She lives out in Long Island now. Her name's McCormick. Iris McCormick. By the time I said goodbye to Gloria and walked out the stage door and got out into the alley, I thought I had most of it figured. The ex-wife of an ex-con married a wealthy Long Islander named McCormick. When the honeymoon was over, the safe was robbed. Walking out that alley, I was wondering whether to phone the police or allied casualty first. It isn't bad. Did you see him? I didn't see nobody. The car. See the car. The one that just gunned out. Oh, the car. We had a long black coupe, a lot of chrome. A fellow didn't have his lights on. Hey, that's against the law. Hey, you need help, mister. No. 
No, I'm all right. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Drama without information is dull, and uh, information without drama is dull. I like to provoke an audience. I like to make them think, if I can. I like to think a little myself. I hate to be cliché. McCormick Matters writer was E. Jack Newman. That's where I first met Edmund O'Brien. We became great friends. He was Johnny Dollar. Then there was another Johnny Dollar uh, named John Lund. Mm -hmm. And then there was another one named Bob Bailey. And maybe there was another one after that. But through the years, it was funny, every time they got in the soup, I, uh, you know, uh, I forget who produced it. Jack Johnstone. That's right. Right. And there was somebody else before him, maybe Norm McDonald or somebody, but they would give me a ring because I knew the format so well. I could write it quickly and make it work. Lo and behold, I find out that I own more of Johnny Dollar than CBS does now. I own all the scripts I ever wrote for them. And we have discussed from time to time making a television series out of it. But that's all we've done is discuss it. Roy Rowan announced, Mary Jane Croft was Iris Carter. I don't ever remember. I think the first job I ever got was, do you remember doing Screen Guild yes. when Bobby Lee and Jimmy O'Neill, they conducted, Bob Lee is a big famous writer now, as you all know, but he and Jim O'Neill conducted ad libs. In other words, they didn't have crowd records at that time. So we all sat in chairs. Then the director would cue Bob, and then Bob would have everyone. Everybody would talk and do yes. rhubarb and walla walla and all that stuff. You weren't allowed to say walla walla. No, I don't remember what we said. <laughs> what did you but say? We said, got thrown out if you said walla walla. Yeah. yeah, we had to really talk. We just worked constantly, didn't we?
Production for these serials was done in a single day. Bob Bailey was paid $60 per 15-minute episode. Adjusted for inflation, a single week's work on dollar paid a little less than $3,000. Between October of 1955 and November of 1956, 55 serials would air. From Hollywood, it's time now for Bob Bailey as... Johnny Dollar. Ready with your party in Hartford, Connecticut, Mr. Dollar. Go ahead, please. Hello, Mr. Barth. Yes? This is Johnny Dollar. Johnny, what's up? Now, listen carefully, Ed. I've just been shot. What? Oh, it's nothing serious. I'm backstage at the Elmar Theater in the Bronx. Johnny... I'm all right. Now, listen to me. I got a tip from old Mike Cairn, a convict, that a man named Joe Panny might have had something to do with the McCormick case a few years ago. Yes, a jewelry case, $100,000. Well, Panny's been murdered. I didn't get a chance to learn anything from him, but I have learned that Panny's ex-wife is married to Julian McCormick. You've uh, contacted our New York office? I've been trying to get your man Frank Porter at his home, but no one answers. Well, it's going to be pretty nasty for Allied Casualty if she plotted with this Joe Panny to rob McCormick. Yeah. Do you want me to wait and let Frank Porter handle it? No, no, no. You go ahead. If somebody's throwing bullets around, they'd better be stopped before... Oh, well... By me rather than Frank Porter, huh? Okay. Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey in the transcribed adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Allied Casualty and Insurance Company Limited, Markham Building, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures incurred during my investigation of the McCormick matter. Item 11, seven dollars and a half, one bottle of scotch, which I sent the stage doorman out to get while I was calling Ed Barth at Allied Insurance. Apparently, everybody in the neighborhood thought the exchange of shots between me and somebody in a long black coupe were backfires. It was the doorman who dragged me back in the theater. Uh, you got yourself a boy now, mister. Ah, uh, it's just a graze. Well, I sure don't get you. Call an insurance people and not police. Somebody fires a gun, don't you call the cops? Have another drink. That's the way it's easy. Hey, hey, where you going? You should see a doctor. Later. I went back outside in the alley where the shooting had taken place. Ten minutes of looking around, and I dug a pair of 38 slugs out of a telephone post. Expense account, item 12, $4.35, cab fare, Elmar Theater to Long Island. It was 12 o'clock straight up when I got to the McCormick home. There were no lights burning, and apparently everyone had retired for the night. I checked the garage first. A 55 Cadillac convertible and a four-year-old Jag. No warm motors, no black coupes. I went to the house. Oh, it's you. Hello, Mrs. McCormick. No, no, please. Please don't come in here. My husband... Oh, please. I don't know who you are, but I remember meeting you at the hotel the other day. I'm Johnny Dollar, an insurance investigator. Insurance? Oh, well, there must be some way we can fix this up. Talk to me tomorrow. I'll meet you somewhere. How can you fix up murder? Murder? What are you talking about? Joe Panny's dead. Your ex-husband. He was shot with a twenty-five, Just like the one you swung at me at the hotel. Oh, no. 
Oh. You want to tell me about that? All right, I'll tell you. Joe was your husband once. You helped him rob this house five years ago. He couldn't have done it alone. He wasn't that slick. He wasn't that good. He could steal a car, but a safe lock's different from ignition. Well? Yes. Yes, I helped him do it. He made me. He promised me if I helped him, I'd never hear from him again. I opened the safe for him. But you were down to see him at his hotel the other night. You searched his room. Searched his room? Yeah. Well, I don't know anything about that. He called me, said he wanted money. I didn't know where he'd been for these last few years. Up the river. Oh, well, he wanted money. Only he wasn't there when I went there. And I was. Yes. And the gun? I went down there to kill him. But I didn't see him. Not then. Later somewhere. I haven't seen him at all, I tell you. Just talked to him on the phone. I I don't suppose it would make any difference if I told you I had a good reason. If I told you I loved my husband very much. Not likely, in view of the fact you helped your ex-husband rob him of $100,000 worth of jewelry five years ago. Oh, I can explain that. Joe came around when we got back from our honeymoon. It's an old story. My past isn't all it... Well, anyhow... Joe threatened to tell my husband about it, unless I gave him money. I didn't have any, so I opened the safe for him that night. It was all I could think to do. Yeah. Then you split with him later on. I told you, I haven't seen him. Why would I want to do that? I have everything I want in life, right here. Mostly my husband. Well, it's still a police matter, Mrs. McCormick. I spent a long time looking for you. Maybe you better get your coat. Iris. Oh, You'll remain exactly where you are. Julian. And so will you, Mr. Dollar. Julian, you heard what I said. Don't worry about it, my dear. Mr. Dollar, I'm a gentleman. But this is a gun. I noticed. A thirty-eight. I got a couple of slugs in my pocket that came from it. Stand over there. Now, this is pretty silly. You can put that thing away and we can settle this my the only way it can be settled. I've told you the absolute truth, Mr. Dollar. She's innocent of any wrongdoing so far as I'm concerned. Is that clear? It's pretty glib, McCormick. She's accessory to a $100,000 heist, and she hasn't done anything wrong. If she wanted to give them away... To an ex-husband. To anybody. That was her affair. I would not press charges. Well, that takes care of you. How are you going to square it with allied casualty in the state of New York? And you also forget a little matter of a dead man. But I haven't forgotten you, Mr. Dollar. Julian, please don't. I've caused enough trouble, please. Calm yourself, my dear. This is the least I can do for you after what you've done for me. Just being my wife. Mr. Dollar, will you accept money? Not enough for murder. Fifty, uh, hundred thousand? I'd hate to kill you, Mr. Dollar. You tried once tonight. You've referred to that before. But you weren't very good, and now you're even worse. You forgot to take the safety off that gun. You saved it! Oh, you've killed him! You've killed him! Ah, he's all right. Get out of the way and let me see that gun. (laughs) I wasn't interested in either one of them for the moment. I was looking at the 38 I'd taken from Julian McCormick. There was a smear of cosmoline still inside the barrel. I sniffed it, checked it, found all chambers loaded. It was a brand new weapon, and it had never been fired. Radio is such a clean business compared to the rest of show business. There were talented people in radio who got along on their talent, not because they were related to somebody, 
not because they had something on somebody, not because they could knife somebody in the back. It was the clean end of show business. Elia Kazan, I used to have him on Crime Doctor, I guess it was, quite frequently, and we'd walk from CBS to Grand Central Station after the show, after the broadcast, and Gadget said more than once that to him, good radio was far more difficult than any of the other media. Now, he'd been born and brought up in a, behind the scenes in the theater. was not only an accomplished actor, but a good director, too. But he felt that, partly because of the limitations of rehearsal, it took more talent to do radio well than any of the other media. Expense account item 13, five dollars and a half, cab fare again, this time from Long Island to an apartment in Queens. The man I wanted to see was Allied Casualties man, Frank Porter. He lived in a very polite neighborhood. Uh, that's apartment 203, but Mr. Porter is not in, sir. I'll wait for him. Yes, sir. It's all right if I sit in your lobby, isn't it? Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, but uh, I'd prefer that you waited somewhere else. You would? Well, this is a rather exclusive apartment building, sir, and we don't like people uh, loitering in the lobby. Well, I'm on a pretty exclusive mission. But uh, you don't like the mud on my clothes and the tear on my coat, huh? Are you a friend of Mr. Porter's? Yeah. Good friend? He wouldn't mind if I waited in his apartment, if that's what you mean. No, sir. Impossible. But a couple of bucks can do wonders sometimes was quite a layout. Books, pictures, furniture, and whatnots that make living at home pretty agreeable. I propped myself up on a stool at Frank's little bar, poured myself a drink, and sat there waiting for him. I was like that a half an hour later when he showed up. He looked a little unsteady on his feet. Oh, gee whiz. Johnny Dollar. Hi. You're the last person in the world I expect to see. Glad to light and let you in. I didn't think you'd mind. No, not at all. I tried to phone you earlier tonight. You were out. I'm sorry. Chief Whiz. What's on your mind, Johnny? I wanted to tell you I was shot at tonight. What? I wanted to tell you I found out who Mrs. McCormick is and was. Since you were on the case first for Allied, I thought I'd tell you first. Well, Chief Whiz. Say, this is a nice setup. Full of nice things. Yeah. I've been in places like this before, Frank. They usually start at 300 or better a month. Good maid service, phone service. All those things cost money. A lot of money. Don't they, Frank? Gee whiz. When did you tumble to it, Johnny? A little while ago, when I was out on Long Island, Julian McCormick made me a proposition. He finally offered me $100,000. A lot of money. He sounded like he'd had experience making propositions. I should have tumbled to it a couple of days ago when you phoned the parole office after I left you. You used my name when you asked for Joe Panny's address. Yeah. I wondered if your tip was on the right track. I didn't figure Joe Panny was eligible for parole so quick. I had to get to him before you did. He wasn't the kind to keep his mouth shut. You shut it for him, didn't you, Frank? Mind if I sit down, Johnny? Now, go ahead. They'll be strapping you down one of these days. <laughs> Gee whiz. No hundred and a half a week investigating claims. 
by nice places like this. It was one of those lucky things, Johnny. When I was called to Long Island to investigate that heist five years ago, I met McCormick's wife. Happened to recognize her as Joe Penny's ex. And you knew McCormick was in love with his wife enough to pay you to keep quiet. I gave him service for his money. The cops would have broken that case in 24 hours, but I covered up all the tracks I could find. And I made it real safe by seeing Joe sent up the river. How? <laughs> Just tipped off the cops to some of his hot car deals, and they picked him up. He happened to be carrying a gun, so he got the works. Then you just sat around drawing blackmail from McCormick. Gee whiz. Don't look at me like that, Johnny. Every guy has his price. How about you? <laughs> That's the second offer I've had tonight. It's a good one. Joe Panny was a dumb guy. He picked up that jewelry and went right downtown and plucked it in a safe deposit box. He's been sitting there all the time he was up the river. Still worth... Sorry, Frank. You sure? I'm sure. Chief Whist. Chief Whist, Johnny, you are a good dick. You don't buy off. I just wanted to see, I guess. Sure, Frank. Well, do we go in quietly? You'd be surprised, Johnny, how quiet. You better dial for an ambulance if you want me to go to the trial. What? You, you were good in that alley back of the theater tonight, Johnny, when I tried to knock you off. I followed you all night looking for my chance. You, you nicked me twice. Dial the doc. Quick, quick. Gee whiz, it hurts. He died right there. Without saying another word. The disposition of the case and what to do about Frank Porter, an insurance adjuster who goes bad, is a matter I don't have to handle. And I'm glad. Expense account item 14, hotel and board in New York City, $79.30. Item 15, $84, legal fees and incidental expenses. Involved in locating the widow of Mike Cairns, who it seems is still alive somewhere in Iowa and will accept half the reward as promised. Item 16, $14 even, transportation back to Hartford. Expense account total, $265.91. Remarks, gee whiz. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, here's our star, Bob Bailey, to tell you about next week's story. Thanks. Next week, the story of a ship, the Molly Kay. Destination, Davy Jones' locker. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson, the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. Heard in this week's cast were Mary Jane Croft, Virginia Gregg, Marvin Miller, Forrest Lewis, Frank Gerstle, Herb Butterfield, Herb Ellis, Tony Barrett, Ken Christie, Jack Crucian, and Junius Matthews. Be sure to join us on Monday night, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, Roy Rowan speaking. Bob Bailey's popularity as Johnny Dollar was evident 
in a few short weeks. Now, here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Before I do that, please let me say thanks to all of you who are so kind about writing and telling us how much you like Johnny Dollar. It's a very gratifying experience. It's encouragement to all of us who are involved in production of the program. And, well, we appreciate your letters more than you know. As always, I'll try to answer you promptly, but sometimes the mail does pile up. In any event, thanks. Thanks very much for writing. Despite a loyal audience, yours truly Johnny Dollar failed to attract any kind of national sponsorship. In April of 1956, the series shifted to 9.15 p.m. By the summer, CBS radio executives were looking to cut costs. I've been thinking for days of all the things that have happened. I think the one memory is the more I think of it, the sadder it is that that type of radio had to leave us. That really, it was mind-challenging to listen. I remember listening to other shows. I had to sneak up at night to listen to Lights Out. It was a very exciting time, and I'm glad now that I was able to share it, and equally glad now that... The next generation is able to hear these shows that a person like you can bring them back for us. I'd like to see radio back again. I would give a lot of people an opportunity to get into the business who aren't pretty enough <laughs> to get on the TV, so to speak. I was very sad when radio, the demise of that kind of radio as we knew it. CBS aired these five-part episodes until November 2nd, 1956. Now, here's our star with a special announcement. Yes. I think you'll be glad to know that beginning Sunday, instead of five times a week, we'll be on the air only once a week, but with a complete half-hour story. Remember, that's beginning this coming Sunday. So join us, won't you? The show moved to Sunday afternoons where it enjoyed continuous airtime in a half-hour time slot. Bob Bailey became the actor most closely associated with the Dollar character. Then in 1960, CBS decided to move all remaining dramatic productions, with the exception of Gunsmoke, to New York. Neither Jack Johnstone or Bob Bailey would move with the production. The last Hollywood episode was appropriately entitled The Empty Threat Matter. It aired on November 27, 1960. The show closed with no mention of the production change. Bob was a fine, fine fellow. No question about it. Uh, incidentally, he wrote one script. He got an idea for, as I recall, a Christmas story one time and asked if he might write a script. Well, that was fine by me. <laughs> so uh, it was a good one. The next week, New York's version of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar took to the air starring Bob Reddick. Johnny Dollar. Toby Cedric, Johnny, over here at Northeast Indemnity. Well, good for you, Toby. Now, what's that supposed to mean? Just that I always have liked the nice big fees that that company of yours hands out on cases. Just happens that I can use one of them right now. I've been running a little short. And I don't get excited, Johnny. Now, what is it this time? Murder? Arson? Embezzlement? Well, it's... Oh, come uh... on, come on, Toby. What is it? Well, as a matter of fact, it's a robbery. Well, fine, fine. If I'm lucky, if I latch onto the loot, whatever it is, I'll collect my usual commission and be loaded again. Uh, Johnny... So tell me all. Now, what's the amount of the loss, hmm? Well, that's the trouble. It's only $5,000. $5,000? $5, Cash. Well, it was only... Are you kidding me, I hope, huh? Nope. Sorry. That's the 
Pull him out. Oh, now look, Toby, that doesn't make sense. Johnstone continued to send scripts, but Reddick had the unenviable task of following Bailey, who played Dollar in almost 500 episodes. Reddick was replaced after just six months, as of June 25, 1961, by the final Johnny Dollar, Mandel Kramer. Johnny Dollar. Johnny, this is George Hardy at Northeast Indemnity Association. Yes, George. Got a pencil and piece of paper? Sure. And write this down. Go ahead. One thirty. 0-7-0-5-8-3. Got it. So? He wants to see you. Who does? One thirty zero seven zero five eight three At State Prison. Oh. You know his name, George? No. But if it's who I think it is, well, Johnny, you just might find yourself going for the commission on 100,000 bucks. CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To Northeast Indemnity Association, Home Office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the tip-off matter. Expense account item one is four sixty for a tank full of gas. Despite the fact that the state pen is only a few miles south in Wethersfield a town with a population of about 20,000, where the father of our country once planned the historic Battle of Yorktown. In other words, George Washington slept there. An assistant warden led me not to one of the cell blocks, but to a screened-off corner in a hospital ward. The man who lay there was in his early 30s. Oh, I don't know. For the last year, I only wrote it. I, they moved production out of Hollywood entirely. I wrote the last year of it. As a matter of fact, the last Johnny Dollar and the last Suspense occurred on the same night. One followed the other. And the Johnny Dollar was written by Jack Johnstone, and the Suspense was written by Jonathan Bundy. Bundy was my wife's name. Quite honestly, I have to be honest about it, I thought New York production of those shows was pretty bad compared with our Hollywood standards during that last year when production of both those shows was done in New York. For Bob Bailey, the end of Dollar meant the end of his radio career. Why, it is painful. It those were very good times, and like I say, afterwards, when radio died, and I mean it died with a big bang, it just died out there in California. They tried to move it back to New York, and when they tried to convert to TV, so many of the radio personalities 
couldn't make the conversion. And until other jobs opened up, like the sponsor jobs, there were a lot of radio stars that just went completely downhill. Especially, like my father, had nothing to fall back on. He'd been an actor all his life. And by the time his radio show was over, he was almost 50. He weighed about 150 pounds, stood about five foot nine and a half, and they looked at him on television and said, you're not Johnny Dollar. And he said, but I am. I've been. And they said, no, no, we have to get a six-foot-tall guy that weighs about 200 pounds to play the part. It was sad. It was a very sad time when TV just wiped it out. There was a prejudice against uh, radio actors on the part of television producers. When they came in, what I've read, at least, is that a lot of them were young whiz kids who came along and had a new toy, and they said... No, 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 if you worked in radio now, you've got your own way of doing things, and this is TV. And actually, when you think that working in radio would give you a credential, back in the early 50s, it actually worked against you. It did, because if you think of it, radio is an entirely different form of acting. You relied completely on the sound man, the sound mixer, for any sound effects that needed to be put in. Although you stood in front of the microphone, you would move your arms occasionally and act a little. All the acting was in the voice, in what came out from inside of you. You could wheel someone up there in a wheelchair, and he would project over the radio his voice, his emotion. We are coming up to news. This is KNUS in Denver. It's 5 o'clock. you've been around Wistful Vista in the past few days, you've noticed that the Elks Club has taken over the operation of Walt's Malt Shop and Hamburger Joint for the weekend. The food has been donated and the profits go to charity. Come on in, let's have a burger and see how business is. <laughs> Two burgers with. Two burgers with. Gotcha. Side of fries. Side of fries. One order of genuine southern style deep hash, please. One gambler's special. Gotcha. Oh, chef. Yeah. What happened to the bacon tomato on toast hold the french fries? Coming up. Take it easy. Oh, boy, the way them women throw the orders at you. Even my own wife yelling at me. This oh is gosh, something that's very important. We learned that a long time ago with the Smith family. Uh-huh. You painted a picture the same as if you were doing it in a motion picture or doing it on a stage for people to see. You painted that picture so that people could see what they were laughing at. That was the trick. Heavy? Mm-hmm. Don't be silly. I'm powerful, Mr. McGee. I've got uh, strength I haven't even used yet. Good. Now, all you have to do is go down the street there in the front of the carnival. Ham sandwich! Ham sandwich! Walk back and forth and let everybody read our ad on there. Yeah? What happened to my bacon tomato on? Coming up! Because once they get a look at that sign that I painted, they'll mob this place and we'll do more business than we ever... Coming up? McGee, you've been saying that for the past half hour. Now, my customer is getting... What are you made up for, Mr. Wimple? Well, I'm going... He's our advertising department, kiddo. We had a, an expression that we used, that, that don't get the picture. Uh-huh. If, you don't, uh-huh. if you don't make a picture, you're not going anywhere. This is the way we thought about it, anyway. Oh, 
Next time on Breaking Wall. It's the spring of 1955, and Fibber McGee and Molly are airing on NBC as a Sunday through Thursday 15-minute serial. Although the couple's highest-rated days were behind them, this lesser-known time in their career showcased their talents in a completely different way. We'll join them in Wistful Vista for a weekend at the malt shop, with all of their earnings going to charity. The reading material used in today's episode was the 1955 Broadcasting Magazine Yearbook, the 1955 Radio Network's Annual, the Winter 1956 Journal of Broadcasting Quarterly, the Who is Johnny Dollar Matter by John C. Abbott, On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, September 19, 1955, October 3, 1955, and April 2nd, 1956, and Radio and TV Mirror, 1955. On the interview front, Mary Jane Croft, Herb Ellis, Jack Johnstone, Elliot Lewis, and Jeanette Nolan were with Spurdvac. For more information, please go to Spurdvac.com. Parley Bayer, Virginia Gregg, and Jim Jordan or with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Roberta Goodwin-Bailey and E. Jack Newman were with John Dunning for his 71KNUS program from Denver. And Hans Conried and Jim Jordan were with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear their full chats at goldenage-wtic.org. Selected music featured in today's episode was Caravan by 80 Drums Around the World, Pyramid to the Sun and Roller Coaster by Les Baxter, Exotique Bossa Nova by Martin Denny, I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Band, Sleepwalk by Henri René, and Good Timing by Jimmy Jones. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater, Radio Drama Revival, and 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting since 2000. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls, episode 103, will join Jim and Marion Jordan for a gem of a weekend at the malt shop. This episode will be available beginning May 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash thewallbreakers. If you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until May 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 102, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. We might
spent the rest of our lives walking down misery street but we have 